One of the things about our Asian culture that I love so much is that we have the custom of serving one another, especially in a multi-course meal banquet. The custom is before we serve ourselves, we serve the person to our right and to our left as a sign of respect and a sign of humility in service. It's really a great custom, but sometimes it poses some awkward moments. And I don't know if you've experienced this uh, in the many meals you have been to. My wife, Cindy, has not found uh, the taste or the appreciation of uh, the slippery and slimy delicacies that are often served. Uh, she cannot palate uh, uh, abalone or mushrooms or the sea urchin. But when she has served it, uh, she's posed with a problem. She doesn't want to offend the host, uh, but she can't seem to swallow it. Uh, and so we have to try to secretly pass it from her plate to my plate without the host looking. Um, and I can't very well just eat off of her plate. As well, So that sometimes poses a, a great difficulty, especially when the host sees this happening. Another awkward moment, or has been an awkward moment, is as a pastor, uh, I am respected, and thank you for that. And so I'm often served by others. And, and of course, when I am served, I profusely thank them, and am humbled by uh, that sign of servanthood. But I remember very distinctly one time when I thought I was being served, and prematurely thanked my seatmate, thinking that he was serving me as he uh, had a serving spoon in his hand, but in fact put the food on his plate uh, and not my plate. Uh, that posed an awkward moment because I'd already thanked him for serving me. But as is often the case, uh, I like to serve others as well. And uh, being in the position that I have, uh, the plate, when it is first presented, is often rotated uh, for me to get the first serving. And I was, will, of course, serve uh, those on my left and those on my right. But let me let you in on a little secret on why I like to serve those on my left and my right. Because I can give my seatmate the smaller pieces and serve myself the bigger ones. I know you do it as well. I'm just telling you the truth. That, my friends, is one of the benefits of uh, serving others. But that is not the biblical attitude for service. What, in fact, is it? That's what we want to find out this morning as we continue our series in the book of Philippians entitled Life in Color, Living Joyfully in All Circumstances. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2 as we take a look at verses 19 to verse 30. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to verse 30. And this morning, as we study these passages, Paul will introduce two people to us. He will introduce his protege, Timothy, as well as a good friend, Epaphroditus. From the lives of these two men and the commendation with which Paul gives them, we want to draw out two attitudes and two actions that help us find joy in serving others. Two attitudes and two actions in helping us to find joy in serving others. Look with me at verses 19 to verse 20 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Paul begins this section by telling the Christians in Philippi that he will soon be sending his very good friend, his companion, uh, his mentee Timothy to them. This very letter was being delivered by a man by the name of Epaphroditus, who we'll talk about a little bit later. 
And Timothy's visit will soon follow their receiving of this letter. Timothy was a companion of Paul in this first Roman imprisonment. And the Bible tells us the primary purpose for Paul sending Timothy in verse 19. We find out that Paul wants to learn of the condition, the spiritual condition and welfare of the church in Philippi. And for Timothy to bring back a good report so that he can be encouraged while he is imprisoned. Timothy would not only serve as a messenger, but he would minister in the place of Paul to the people and the church he so loved. Paul was very much concerned as a spiritual father was to their spiritual children. He cared very much for the spiritual well-being of the Philippian Christians. We often gloss over these background verses, but if we simply stop and, and, and think more about it, there are principles which we can draw out. And here in these two verses, we see the attitudes of both Paul and Timothy, an attitude we are to emulate. And the first attitude we are to emulate to help us cultivate joy in serving others is that we are to have the attitude of selflessness. And if you're taking notes, that's number one. Paul and Timothy both exemplified selflessness. That is the attitude we are to cultivate. How did Paul demonstrate this? Paul was willing to give up his very trusted companion, one who is described in the Bible as a kindred spirit, one who not only knew Paul, but complimented him. Timothy was very close to Paul, as you know, dear to his heart. You can know of their brotherly love for each other. In the letter, Paul writes to young Timothy to encourage him in the ministry in not one, but two books in the Bible. If ever Paul needed Timothy, it was right there and then as he was imprisoned in Rome. But Paul was willing to sacrifice Timothy's help and companionship so that the Philippian Christians could be helped. Paul exemplified selflessness. Timothy also demonstrated selflessness by willing to undertake a long and arduous journey to serve the church in Philippi. He could have enjoyed the conveniences of being in the Roman capital of Rome, but he chose to travel a great distance on behest of Paul to minister to the Philippians. You see, Timothy showed forth selflessness by putting the Philippians' needs above that of his own. My friends, if you are not willing to place the needs of others over the needs of yourself in selflessness, then you will never find the joy of serving others. As you catalog your own needs and see the needs of others, whose needs take priority? If we're honest with ourselves, often it is our needs that take priority. Pastor Kevin Miller of Wheaton, Illinois, proposed this question to his church members. What makes it hard for you to serve other people? A simple question and the response he receives from his church. One member writes, Serving is hard when it doesn't fit in my schedule and my plan. Like when I want to go for a long walk or take a long bath and my aging parents call me because they need me to sort out their medicine or to run an errand or to simply be with them. It's hard to serve because oftentimes I need to serve at a time that is not convenient to my own and it doesn't fit into my schedule. Another writes this, serving is hard when their needs seem to be endless. 
I don't want to risk helping or serving others because I may get sucked in. Serving others is messy. I get pulled into their life. Another writes this. Serving is difficult because there's such limited energy left after a demanding workday meeting our basic responsibilities, whether it's with young children or in the corporate world. How do you balance the need for rest and self-care with the need for serving others? It is a tension and it is hard. But my favorite answer to Pastor Miller's question, what makes it hard for you to serve other people? My favorite answer is this. What makes it hard to serve others? Others. The word others. The very reason why serving others is hard is because you are serving other people. I have no problem when I'm serving myself. I have no problem when others are serving me. But it's difficult when I have to serve other people. But the Bible tells us the attitude we are to cultivate to give us joy in serving others is that we must cultivate a heart of selflessness. It's about others. It's always about others. It's not about you. That's the very definition of service. God wants you to serve others, not out of obligation, but out of jubilation. And so it's all in the attitude. It's not in the aptitude. It's not in the ability. You see, too many people make excuses of why they can't serve others. They say, I have, I have limited resources. I can't give to others. What about the talents God has given you? What about the time that God has given you? Some say, I can't cook for others. I can't bake. Well, can you dial a phone and have some food delivered to someone who is in need? Can you call people and give them an encouraging word? Can you stop what you're doing and give someone a handshake or a smile or a greeting? Can you for once... Take an interest in someone else's life and not always about you. You see, the big thing about selflessness is that you have to be ready to serve others. You have to open up your eyes and your ears to the needs of others. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says this, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. God has given each one of you a spiritual gift by which to serve the church, the people in the church. What are you doing with that gift? Are you cultivating an attitude of selflessness? Paul continues in verses 21 to 24 as he speaks of Timothy. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Paul affirms the very character of Timothy. What does he say of it? He says of it in verse 21, that while everyone else seeks their own things, Timothy seeks the things of Christ. This was the character of Timothy as Paul has observed him as they co-labored in the gospel work. And you know the true character of someone when you work with them. 
And Paul says of Timothy, the character of Timothy is that he does not seek things for himself. He seeks things which are of Christ Jesus. The rest of the world seeks selfishly for themselves, but for Timothy, he seeks Christ. Now again, we may also gloss over these verses, but I want you to notice something here. Oftentimes, we would assume that Paul would say in verse 21, for all seek their own, not the things of others, because the opposite of me is others, right? The opposite of myself is other people. But interestingly, Paul writes, for all seek their own, my own things, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, which is what Timothy sought. The opposite of me is things of Jesus Christ. Now, why am I making a point about this? Let me give you the second attitude first, and then I will explain it. The second attitude we are to cultivate in our lives to find joy in serving others is that we are to have an attitude number two that seeks the things of Christ. An attitude that seeks the things of Christ. You see, if we find joy in simply serving others for others' sake, then where will that joy be when that person does not say thank you? Where will our desire to serve others be when we don't like them very much? Where will our desire to serve them be if they are not responsive to our serving them? And I know that annoys many people, as it does myself, when people are ungrateful, when people don't say thank you. And sometimes we serve them simply for that statement, a statement of appreciation and of thanks. But what if those things don't happen? Will you still serve them? That's why the Bible tells us the attitude is not serving others, but the attitude is do it for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because when you do it for the sake of Jesus Christ, even if they don't thank you, even if you don't like them, you will still serve them for the sake of Christ. Your motivation, your attitude for serving others is because you are storing treasures in heaven. And it's not about you feeling good. You don't need for others' approval because you already have the approval of God. You don't serve others for their response. You serve others for the sake of Christ. And it is in that truth that you will find joy in serving others. When you seek the things of Christ, that means your character before the Lord is upright. It is humble. You don't mind what others think about you. My friends, work on your character because God will work on your reputation. And yet, many of us are so worried about our reputation that we don't have time to work on our character. In the commendation of Timothy to the Philippian church, Paul says in verse 22, but you know his proven character. Paul commends young Timothy to the Philippians, not because of his reputation, but because of his character. If you serve others without caring who it is and what you have to do, your character will show forth itself that you don't have to worry about your reputation. 
because your character speaks for itself. In 2005, a certain Thomas Cannon died of colon cancer in a hospital in Richmond, Virginia. He was 79 years old. Thomas described himself as a poor man's philanthropist. You see, when Thomas was three years old, his father died. And once Thomas's mother remarried, this large family of six now lived in a three-room wooden shack without running water or electricity. Thomas Cannon grew up in poverty. As an adult, it didn't get much better. Thomas went to work in the U.S. Postal Service. He never made more than 25 thousand U.S. dollars a year, which, according to American standards, is under the poverty line. Upon retirement, he and his wife lived in poverty. Yet over the course of 33 years, Thomas gave away more than $156,000, and his gifts were mainly in the form of $1,000 checks anonymously given to people he read about in the newspapers who were going through hard times or especially exemplified courage or kindness he would give it to a youth worker in a low-income apartment complex. He would give it to a volunteer faithfully serving at the local elementary school. He would give it to a Vietnamese refugee couple who wanted to return home for a visit but could not because of the price of the airfare. He would give it to a teenager abandoned as an infant who was struggling to go to college. These were but some of the recipients of Thomas Cannon's benevolence such an influential life he lived that there was actually a biography written about him by Sandra Wagaman. And in this biography, she comments, not many people would consider living in a house in a poor neighborhood without central heat, air conditioning, or a telephone and working overtime so that they could save money only to give it away. How many of you would work overtime to earn money so that you can give it away. Thomas Cannon is one who has cultivated an attitude that sought the Lord in all things, not earthly treasures, only heavenly ones. His serving others for the sake of the Lord brought great joy to his life, not a moment of regret in what he did, even though he lived in poverty here on earth. Oh, the rewards he must have received when he got to heaven. Can you cultivate in your mind an attitude that I will not serve myself. I will not seek for my own needs. I will seek the things of Christ and what he so desires. To help those who are helpless. To help those who are in need. Such was the commendation of young Timothy. Hopefully it will be the commendation of your life. But this is very difficult. This is one of my struggles as well. It's hard to serve others when you want the good things in life. And if you're honest with yourself, you appreciate it. Why do I have to give up my rights and my responsibilities? And Why do I have to give what I have for the sake of other people? It's never a convenient time. My schedule is always full. And it's often a struggle even with myself to seek the things of Christ and to serve others as they so need. But God has been teaching me the joy that comes from serving others. And when you taste that joy, it's a joy that cannot be bought. It's a hard lesson. He keeps drilling it into my mind every week. 
like he did again this past Friday. This past Friday, Sydney and I went to Sofitel Hotel. We were graciously given, uh, as a Christmas gift, uh, a dinner for two at Spiral Buffet. Our life group meeting had moved this week from meeting Friday evening to Saturday morning, and so that gave us an excuse to sneak out. I was very much looking forward to this buffet. It's been three years since I've been back uh, when the storm surge destroyed the place, as you know. I've read reviews about it. I've heard about it, and it was something that I was looking very much forward to. Also, as some of you may know, or some of you may not know, I have lost about 15 pounds, and I wanted to celebrate this Friday. I was going to gain all 15 pounds back in one dinner. But it was something I had cleared the schedule for, and I was going to enjoy that evening, me and my food, and my wife also there. (laughs) And so we arrived, and it was God, as if God was speaking to me and said, this evening is about you, Stephen. Because I saw a large sign, and as you've been to Sofitel, you'll see a large sign advertising their 21 ateliers, uh, basically 21 food stations. 21. You've got to understand that 21 is my number. It's the date of my birth. Uh, It's my jersey number playing football growing up. It's my baseball jersey number. 21 is my number. And... It's as if the Lord was saying, tonight is your night to sample all 21 stations. It was going to be a special night. You have cheat days in your diet where you take a break from your diet. And there are gluttony days, and this was going to be one of them. As I sat down to enjoy it, I received a text and a telephone call. It was a call for me to go and help someone going through marital difficulties. And it needed to happen Friday evening. I said, Lord, what lesson are you trying to teach me? My wife said, it's God holding you away from temptation. (laughs) I said, Lord, you have a very difficult way of teaching me lessons. My evening ended much quicker than I thought. And we went and sat in a room for three hours helping someone uh, in their married life. The next morning, as I was having my quiet time, I have to admit to you that the memories of prime rib and foie that were left at the buffet was weighing heavily on my mind. And the human struggle of saying, Lord, of all times... Could they not have waited to fight until Saturday morning? Why Friday evening? It's a struggle. It's difficult. And as I meditated upon God's word, and I examined my own life, I realized there is a joy that a meal cannot bring into my life. And it's not because I'm a pastor. It's because when you understand the spiritual nature and the work of Christ as you help someone, it brings you a joy in your life that you cannot explain. A a satisfaction that runs so deep in you that you say, you know what? It's fine. It's worth it. And you know how much I love food. But those lessons 
those lessons of learning joy in serving others comes when you have an attitude cultivated that seeks the things of Christ. And that joy is so worth it. Look at verse 25 with me. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, your messenger, but your messenger, and the one who ministered to my need. Paul now introduces a new man, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus traditionally is viewed as the one who carried the letter to the Philippians. He was the messenger. Now, why was Epaphroditus there in Rome in the first place? We're going to find out in chapter 4 when we get there that Epaphroditus was sent by the church in Philippi. He had the responsibility of bringing the money from the church that the church had, had raised to give to Paul to help him while he was imprisoned. And while there, apparently Epaphroditus felt compassion for Paul, and he decided to stay there indefinitely to help the ministry of Paul while he was imprisoned. Such a great help to Paul was this man Epaphroditus, that Paul grew a kinship with him. And as he describes Epaphroditus in verse 25, he does so with five wonderful qualities. He says of this man, he is a dear brother in the faith. He is a vital partner in the ministry Thirdly, he is a, he's a fellow soldier. He is one who has been in the trenches with Paul in times of spiritual battle in a hostile environment. And when you go through the trenches of battle with someone in spiritual warfare, you know the character of that man. You grow a kinship with them. He describes Epaphroditus, fourthly, as a faithful messenger. And finally, Paul says, one who ministered to my need. I want you to underline that in your Bibles as I have in mine. So I want to focus on Epaphroditus to Paul was one who ministered to the very present and real needs of Paul. Sometimes when we serve others, the honest truth is this we do so on the basis of our own convenience. We serve others based on what makes us feel better. We never really ask them what they need. We serve others because of what we think they need, the audacity of that. We serve others based on our capabilities, on, on the extent of what we can do or what we are willing to do for them. But we are called to serve the needs of what others have. You know, we rarely ask people what they really need. Why? Because we're scared about the response. We're afraid of what they will say. Because if we ask them, what do you need? They may say, you know, I need, a, I need to find a place to sleep for six months. Six months? I was just going to buy you dinner. We know they have a need. And we're afraid to ask them, what do you need? Because they may ask from us a sum that we are not willing to part with. 
We are afraid to ask them what is their need because that may entail driving them to church every week. And so we simply help them on what we think they need. But in actuality, it's what makes us feel good. I think you know what I'm talking about. Paul says of Epaphroditus, he was one who ministered to my need. It was messy. It was involved. It was not glamorous to meet the needs of a prisoner of Rome. And here we see the first of two principles of action that leads to joy in serving others. Two attitudes correspond to two actions. The first attitude was selflessness. The corresponding first action is ministering to others' needs. An attitude of selflessness leads to the action of ministering to others' needs. Unless you have cultivated an attitude of selflessness, you will never find the joy that comes from meeting the real needs of other people. As someone said, most people wish to serve God. Many people want to serve God, but only in an advisory capacity. Everyone wants to serve God, but everyone wants to be an advisor. There are a lot of people who like to talk. They like to say what the church should do. They say what we should be doing. But when it actually comes time for them to actually do it, they have a thousand and one reasons why they're not the best man or woman for the job. They're too busy. They didn't expect the responsibilities required. Or simply they're unwilling to do it. Oh, but they have a thousand and one suggestions. Before you suggest something, you better make sure you're willing to do it. The joy that comes from serving is the joy of knowing you are doing something that other people really need. You are doing it to serve others and not yourself. You see, a lot of reasons why we do things is it makes us feel better. It gives us that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. But your nice, warm, fuzzy feeling doesn't help that person in need oftentimes. We often do the work of missions, whether in our local community or around the world, only to make us feel better. To allow the public to see what we're doing. But it's often for a show. What is the real need they have? And sometimes the real need they have is not something we want to do. It's involved. It's long-term. It's messy. But Paul's commendation to Epaphroditus to the Philippian church was that he ministered to my needs. He filled a need. I often wondered what Epaphroditus did for Paul. I look forward to asking him in heaven. I've got a lot of questions for a lot of people when I get to heaven. But I put myself in the position of Epaphroditus and of Paul, and I asked myself this week, what in the world would a prisoner ask someone to do for them? Hey, Epaphroditus, could you get me some water? Can't get out of these chains. Hey, Epaphroditus, could you get me some aloe to rub on my skin, these metal chains are chafing it. Hey, Epaphroditus, could you get a candlelight and, and hold it while I read? 
Epaphroditus, would you go and get a paper and pencil, if there was one back then, and would you write this letter for me? Hey, Epaphroditus, I need some of my clothes washed. It seemed to me Epaphroditus was a glorified secretary, perhaps. What was Epaphroditus before? Again, I don't want to read too much into what the Bible does not say. But I'm reminded in the scripture that Philippi was a Roman colony made famous by the purple trade. If you remember the book of Acts where Paul met Lydia uh, by the sea bank, seller of purple. This was a city of commerce, perhaps a church full of businessmen. I don't want to speculate, but throughout the scriptures, only faithful men are entrusted with money. Only men of high esteem, of high responsibility. Epaphroditus could have been a church leader uh, in the church of Philippi, an esteemed businessman, one who, whose character and reputation was above reproach that he could be entrusted with the offering to be brought to Paul. Could it be that Epaphroditus, the businessman, became Epaphroditus, the glorified secretary, in the willingness of what he was going to do because Paul didn't need a businessman. Paul needed a secretary. That's what Paul says of him. He was one who ministered to my need. I'm so glad that there's so many in our church and around the world who are, who are like Epaphroditus, people who minister to others, not to make them feel good, but they do so in the shadows of the background to help people who are really in need. And I see that in this church. I met one of these ladies uh, last year, perhaps a female version of Epaphroditus. She came with us on our Bible study tour last year. Uh, she was from the U.S. and she joined our Philippines group. She worked in the World Bank as a senior economist, as a, as a banker for many years in Washington, D.C. If you have been on our Bible study tours at the end of a long day of touring and studying, everyone's tired and everyone's hungry. And oftentimes, the dinner is in the hotel. Uh, it's a buffet, and then they can go to bed. And at the end of each day, every year I go on these trips, at the end of the day, everyone is so hungry and so tired, they attack the buffet line like they've never eaten. Cindy and I would often have some tour things to attend to, and by the time we would enter the dining hall uh, and make our way to the buffet line, people have had their seconds and their thirds, and there's not a lot of good things left, uh, just a lot of vegetables. About a week into this three-week trip, once again, one evening, we were uh, the last ones to enter the dining hall, the last ones to eat. And uh, we met this lady, this world banker. And she said, Pastor, uh, sit down. I've uh, reserved you a, a seat there and uh, have gotten you some plates of food. Uh, I, I said, you don't have to do that. Yeah, it's, it's okay. And I remember what she told me, and it brought such joy and almost tears to my eyes. She said, Pastor... As you've ministered to us, 
I want to minister to you. And I see you guys running around. And by the time you get here, you only get the leftovers. So it's going to be my ministry to you on this trip to serve the both of you first. And I'll get in line first and I'll make sure that you get a plate of all the good stuff before it's gone. And that was her ministry to me and my wife for the next 14 days. She did it with a smile. She did it with gladness. I wish you could meet her. There's such joy that comes out of her life. Joy from this world bank banker. You see, when we minister to the needs of others, it's about others. It's not about you. Verse 26 to 28. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you meet him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. In verse 26 to 28, we find out that Epaphroditus had suffered a serious illness while he ministered to Paul. It almost took his life. Again, I don't want to speculate what the Bible doesn't say, but maybe he worked so hard caring for Paul that his immune system uh, was lowered and he caught a virus. But whatever the case, in the ministry of the Lord, Epaphroditus got sick. By the grace of God, he was healed. But his friends in Philippi had heard about it, and they were worried and concerned about him. And now a glimpse into this man, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was distressed because he knew they were worried for him. Can you imagine that? He worried that they worried about him. And so Paul says, you know what, Epaphroditus? I'll I'll send you back so that you can encourage them. Now, Paul writes something very interesting in verse 29 of verse 30. Look with me. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what he was lacking in your service towards me. Why did Paul write these words? He was one of their own. Why would Paul tell the Philippian church, receive him with all gladness and hold this man as unto honor? Because Paul knew perhaps some may misconstrue why Epaphroditus was being sent home early. You know how people are. They always think badly. Hey, Epaphroditus, you came back early. Guess you couldn't hack it in the Roman prison, could you? Hey, Epaphroditus, why'd you come home early? You were kicked out by Paul? You must have failed Paul somehow. Epaphroditus, you were our representative. You represented the church in Philippi. This is an embarrassment how you got sent back home. And and the words would have gone on and on. Paul wanted to nip these words in the bud, and he said, He did not fail me. Receive him, he says, with all gladness, and hold a man such as this in high esteem. Now, why did Paul say this man was to be held in high honor? Verse 30, for the sake of the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. 
Paul was saying this man is to be held in high esteem because he almost died for the sake of Christ in serving me. Now, what did Epaphroditus do? He didn't save Paul from prison. He didn't overpower the Roman guards and in the process of the escape was killed. That would have been an honorable thing. He simply served Paul as a servant. And Paul says, this man, in his faithful service to me, never written about in the scripture, exactly what he did is to be honored because he did it for the sake of Christ. In the small things done faithfully unto the Lord, he is to be honored. And here, my friends, we see the second action that corresponds to the second attitude. When you have an attitude that seeks the things of Christ, it will leave you with the action to serve in the work of Christ. An attitude that seeks the things of Christ will lead to an action that serves in the work of Christ. You see, joy comes in serving others when you do so for the sake of Jesus Christ. Even if the world thinks it's small, it's inconsequential, even if the world says that's a menial labor, if it is done as unto the Lord, the Bible says, it is to be esteemed. This man almost lost his life for the sake of God, was it worth it? The Bible says, absolutely. What about your life's work? You're slaving over your business and your job, and praise God, he's given you work. You're working 100 hours a week. You don't have time for God. When you die of sickness from overwork, can you say, oh, it was worth it all. I'm so glad I worked 100 hours a week. Will they eulogize you? This man is to be esteemed because he abandoned his family. He abandoned his spiritual life so that he could build this business. Let me tell you what, after the flowers are sent, after the casket is put in the ground, the world moves on. They will not applaud your life. The Bible says, what are you willing to die for? What are you willing to work so hard for in this world that is of value? And yet we know this truth. But ourselves and the world are willing to die over our jobs, over something that has no eternal value, none whatsoever. I'm not saying all quit your jobs and go to seminary. Please don't get me wrong. I'm saying you need to look through the lenses that whatever you're doing, Whatever ministry God has called you to in your place of work, do you see it as a ministry of evangelism and of discipleship where you are serving the work of Christ in whatever you do? Do you have an attitude that says, Lord, whatever I do in whatever field of profession I'm in, it is to bring the love of Christ to the people I interact with. It's to be Christ-like so that others can see what my relationship with Christ is all about. You see, the joy of serving others comes from doing something that is of eternal value, something that is the work of Christ in your life. A lot of you are doing great community service. It's a wonderful thing what you do. But hear me well. Unless it is a work done as, as unto the Lord, it is of no value, the Bible says. It is of little value in the kingdom of God. Please don't leave this morning thinking, I'm saying that community service, social work is all bad. 
It's not. It's a wonderful thing. But do you bring Christ into the picture of why you do it? Is the purpose of why you are in community activities, even in college, is the reason why you have an advocacy so that you can show the love of Jesus Christ which you have experienced and then you wanting the world to know you serve Him. Because if you don't have that in your social communities and advocacies, then while it is good in the eyes of the world, that social pursuit has of little value in the kingdom of God. And you may get mad at me, but that's what the Bible says. Now listen well again. I'm not saying social work is bad. I'm glad that there were volunteer firefighters. I'm glad that there are rescue teams. I'm glad that there's charity work out there. Wonderful. I'm glad that you are part of the Lions Club. And I'm glad that you are Rotarian. But I'm glad that you're in a family association or a Chinese association or a trade association. Wonderful. But do those circles of influence know that the reason you are there is that you can be a representative for Christ? Oh, you say, oh, pastor, you're getting all religious on us. They won't like that. Well, they like your money. I think they'll like you. How many of you will stand up and say, the reason I'm here is because the love of Christ compels me to do this service as unto others? No wonder people think that Christians don't do anything because we have so compartmentalized our Christian life and our service life that they don't know why or how one is drawn to the other. They should know that the reason we serve in the community is because the love of Christ and for His sake compels us to demonstrate the life of, love of Christ to others. I hope you know what I'm talking about. It is work done unto His name that counts. It's a slight but important difference. You can continue the work, but now the motivation is that you can bring Christ to them and that you are doing it for the Lord. And the Bible says these are men and women of honor and of esteem when they're willing to do anything and everything in the name of Jesus Christ to work for Christ. My friends, the life that we live is so short. The time that we have is so short. With the time that God has given you, what are you doing for the sake of Christ? The Bible says... It is because of the work of Christ Epaphroditus came close to death and he is to be esteemed. Not because he worked hard, not because he almost died, but because his work was for Christ. By the grace of God in your magnanimous heart, uh, you share me with others, other organizations and churches, and I thank you for that. Sometimes when I'm invited to preach at other churches, uh, the inviter calls me, and they become so apologetic. And they say something to the effect, Oh, Pastor, we'd like to invite you to speak, but we're so sorry our church is so small. Our organization is, is small, not, not like your church. Um, would you still accept? And I always want to tell them, You have nothing to be sorry for. Please don't be. Whether it's five people or 1,500 people, if it fits into my schedule, 
I will do it for the sake of Christ, as was a decision before the Lord I made many years ago. For whatever reason, I get invitations to speak at corporate functions and charity events. I don't know why, but I tell them up front, if I cannot mention the name of Jesus Christ, then I respectfully decline. And I've made many, I've given many uh, declines of why I can't do it. It's as simple as that. My time is too short. The time that God has given me to serve Him is the time that I have. If I can't talk about Christ, if He can't be exemplified in my life, I have better things to do with my time. I hope that is the case in your life as well. What are you doing in the service of the one who died for you? Is your life lived for Him? On Wednesday's theology class, we've been talking about the beauty of salvation and the great theological concept of redemption. And the redemption is the picture where we are slaves. We're literally in a slave market. And Christ comes along and He redeems us. And the purchase price for our release is His blood. He paid through His own life. A slave who has no possibility of joy, who cannot experience anything, has been redeemed to do what? To live for the one who died for you. To live for the one who freed you. It should come very naturally that when each of us have experienced the life-transforming work of salvation in our life, that we are motivated to serve the rest of our life doing His work in whatever spheres of influence God has put us in. In the sphere of school, in the sphere of business, in the sphere of family, in the sphere of community. Are you living for Him? It's not about what you do. It's why you do it. It's not about who you do it for is about the one who compels you to do it. I close with the story, the story of Pastor Ian McLaren, who went to a certain home and saw an old Scottish woman sitting in her kitchen weeping. She wiped her eyes with the corner of her apron, and when the pastor asked her, what's the matter, she confessed, Pastor, I've done so little. I'm so miserable. I'm so unhappy. Why? Because I've done so little for Jesus, she told the pastor. You see, pastor, when I was a small little girl, the Lord spoke into my heart, and I wanted to live for him. Well, haven't you, the pastor said? Yes, I've lived for him, but I've done so little. I want to be of some use in his service. Well, the pastor said, what have you done? She replied, I've washed dishes. I've cooked three meals a day. I've, I've taken care of the children. I've mopped the floor. I've mended the clothes. That's all I've done my entire life. But I wanted to do something for Jesus. Pastor Ian McLaren sat back in his armchair and looked at her and smiled. Woman, where are your children? Where are your boys? He inquired. She had four children. She loved the Lord. She named all of her kids after the four Gospels. Oh, my boys, you know where Mark is. You ordained him yourself before he went to China as a missionary. Why are you asking? He's there preaching for the Lord. Minister asked, well, where's Luke? Well, Luke, 
Luke was sent out by her own church to plant a church plant. Didn't you send him out? And you know what? I even received a letter from him the other day. A revival has broken out in this church plant. They were experiencing a wonderful time in the service of the Lord. And where's Matthew? Matthew is working with his brother in China. And isn't it wonderful? What a great testimony that two brothers can work together. So happy about that. And what about your youngest, John? And she paused and with love in her voice, she said, Oh, John, John, John's my baby. He's only 19, but he's a great boy. You know, Pastor, he told me just last night, Mother, I've been praying. And tonight in my room, the Lord spoke to my heart. And what do you suppose he told me? I have to go to my brothers in China and serve with them. But don't you cry, Mother, he told me. The Lord told me I was to stay here and look after you until you go home to glory, and then I will go to China. The minister looked at the woman, and he said, Madam, you say your life has been wasted in mopping floors, knitting socks, washing dishes, and doing the trivial tasks you think have no consequence. Ma'am, I'd like to have your mansion when we are called home. It will be very big, and it will be very near the throne of God. I don't know what God has called you to do. I don't know who he's called you to serve, whether in the church or in your family or in the school or in your place of work, wherever God has strategically placed you. Are you doing it for his sake? Do you serve others with an attitude of selflessness that leads to an action of ministering to their real needs? Do you serve with an attitude of seeking the things of Christ leading to the action of serving in the work for Christ? Do you serve others because of the Lord and find great joy in it? Even though you may greatly dislike that person, but it's okay, you do it with a smile because you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for the Lord. You may hate the task that God has called you to do and it may be so small and, and menial in the eyes of the world, but you will do it with a smile because you don't do it for the world's approval. You do it because of the one who calls you to do it. And in what you do, he is well pleased. Those who serve the Lord with gladness will find that their reward in heaven is mighty big. What are you doing to build your mansion and glory? And as the illustration goes, how close is it to the throne of God? Begin now to find joy in serving others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. A, a great reminder to me, and I hope to many this morning. It's not easy to serve because we're so focused on our needs and our wants that even in our desire to serve, it's at our convenience. But thank you for men like Timothy and Epaphroditus and for Paul willing to speak about these men to share with us the attitudes and the actions that were demonstrated to teach us what it means to serve joyfully. May you rally this church to be a church full of joy, joy that comes out of our mutual respect for one another and our selflessness to serve one another, whoever it may be and whatever the task may be. Help us to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.